You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. And you can take your seats. I'm so grateful for Mark leading us in worship. And I just was thinking about his story. What an amazing story. A young guy that has a massive heart attack and, and is graciously and, and providentially healed by the God of the universe. And just thinking about his testimony and how he used that testimony to share with us what he learned about the character of God. And that is really what every circumstance of our life is intended to provide. It's what every passage of scripture is intended to provide for us. And that is an opportunity to allow us to see God's character more clearly through the person and identity of Jesus Christ. And so uh, just grateful for that reminder this morning. And now we continue to have a reminder of that as we turn in our Bibles to the gospel of Mark chapter 8. If you don't have your Bible, grab one of the Bibles in the seats in front of you. You can find Mark chapter 8 verse 11 on page 843. Over the last couple weeks from the gospel of Mark, we've been reminding ourselves of how important it is for God that we as his disciples understand. That we, we look at the situations of our life and we connect the dots to be able to see God's character. It was very important for Jesus that his disciples connected the dots of his teaching and of his miracles to be able to see his true identity. In fact, the gospel of Mark begins in chapter 1, verse 1 by saying, this is intended to show you that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so that's what the gospel of Mark is. That's what every page of scripture is. That's what every circumstance of your life is. The intention of having you understand the true identity of Christ and have that impact the way that you think, speak, and live. But as we think about this concept of understanding, we we must first see to understand. And we talked last week how that passage showed us that in order to understand what God wants us to understand about him, we need to see theologically. We need to be able to see our lives' circumstances through the connecting of the dots that get us to God's character. But this week, we're going to see how it's important for us to get to a place of understanding by first evaluating, even before seeing, what is the motivation? What is the motivation of our pursuit of understanding? You know, my my whole life, I've had great eyesight. In fact, growing up, my my parents called me Eagle Eye. I don't know if they remember that. But on our shag carpet, whenever there was a contact that was lost or, or, you know, something that needed to be found, they called in old Eagle Eyes, and here I came, and usually I would find it. It helped me in baseball. I could actually see the stitches on a baseball as a 90-mile-an-hour fastball was coming in. I could see the rotation and be able to adjust. And so God has always blessed me with good eyesight until recently. I've been noticing that even as I read the Bible on Sunday mornings, I'm having to do this kind of thing. And the optometrist last week confirmed the inevitable. Jeff, you need readers. Dun, dun, dun. Because what are readers of those glasses that grandparents wear down at the end of their nose and they can't figure out, do I look above them or below them? I mean, that's, it's one of those things that just is a mile marker for me that I'm getting old. And so he said, you need these readers. And he told my wife the same thing. And so well, on our drive home, we're starting to think about how, how are we actually going to implement this in our lives? We haven't had to wear readers. We haven't uh, had found any that we think would be comfortable, that would be stylish. And so we started thinking through all of those challenges and realized that if we're motivated enough, we'll wear them. 
So if the information that we're, we're looking at and we're trying to read clearly is important enough, like say on the, 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 the instructions of a pill bottle or the homework of our kids and we care deeply about them to be able to see and understand that, if we're motivated enough, we will read with readers so that we can see clearly. Well, this passage that I'm about to read really has the intention of reminding us that if we want to be able to see theologically, if we want to be able to clearly understand and connect the dots, it, it begins with what is our motivation. And, and my, my thesis this morning is that savoring Christ is our motivation. So I'll unpack that after reading this and showing you some details that the uh, gospel author Mark provides for us. Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them got into the boat again and went to the other side. Now they, this was Jesus' disciples, had forgotten to bring bread and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive and, or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida. Some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I, I see people, but they look like trees walking. And Jesus laid his hands and his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. Perhaps this is a familiar passage to you if you've studied God's word or maybe you read in anticipation the section that you knew we would be covering. It's really going to unpack the fact that to get to a place of seeing to understand, it must begin with the motivation of savoring Christ. Let's look first of all at savoring is a savoring by recognizing the sign. It's a savoring by recognizing the sign. Jesus arrives at the west shore of the Sea of Galilee. So remember what's been going on in the Gospel of Mark up to this point. Jesus has been ministering to the Gentiles or for the Jews. These were people who were unclean. Jesus was teaching them. He was healing them. The crowds were growing, but Jesus decides to take the disciples to the western shore. He arrives at the western shore, which is the Jewish region around the Sea of Galilee, and there's a group that meets him that we expect by now is going to meet Jesus. So the boat lands on the shore, the disciples begin to get out, and there are the Pharisees, verse 11. These are the religious leaders, the religious elite, and it says, they came and began to argue with him. Do you ever have people in your life that when you see them coming, you're like, here it comes. 
They're going to have a complaint. They're going to criticize. They're going to take whatever you say and take the opposite stance. Well, that's the Pharisees. And so they're ready to argue with him just as Jesus would expect. But, but they make a demand of him that is really interesting because up to this point, they have not specifically asked for this. What does it say? It says that they sought a sign. Now, the word seeking in the original language means to demand. They're, they're going to Jesus with an ultimatum. We are not going to believe you. We are not going to follow you. We are not going to support you unless you give us this. What does it say they're asking for? Look at the text. They're asking for a sign from heaven. What is a sign from heaven? Well, you can write out to the side in your margins, this is a miracle. This is a miracle. Now, when I say miracle, we're, we're familiar with this concept, like the 1980s U.S. hockey team. Miracle, right? But, but I want to just take a, can I, can I take a departure from the flow of the text just to inform us, what does the Bible say a miracle is? I'll ask the team to put a, quote up on the screen. This is a, a definition that I've come up with that I think is the biblical definition or the concept of a miracle. It's an act of God which bends his rules of the physical universe. Now, when we think about that, that, that's important because when you look at the Bible and when the Bible says this was a miracle, it's usually, if not always, an event where God bends the rules of his physical universe. That's not a miracle when you pass your test. You may say, well, pastor, you don't know me. <laughs> it's not a miracle when as you're driving across country, you pass that police officer in the middle of the median and you weren't paying attention and you were going 15 miles over the speed limit and you're, you're gazing in your mirror intently to see if the, the car pulls out into the highway. You've all been there, right? And then what do you say to your, your, co your, your co-pilot? You say, it's a miracle they didn't come and get me. You know, another one that we often use that I just want to press in a little bit on, and that is that when there's a healing that the medical community can't explain, we'll say, oh, it was a miracle. But I want to submit to you that I think each one of those events is better defined as an act of providence. Here's a definition I'll encourage you to write down, that providence is God's hand playing out in an authoritative role in an event. Which, frankly, every event of our life is an act of providence. But I think if we would more lean toward that type of vocabulary, I think we would more align with what the Bible says an act of providence is versus a miracle. Now, why else is that important? And, and it, it, this sets up what the Pharisees are asking. In the Bible, whenever there was a miracle, whenever God bent the rules of his physical universe, there was purpose behind it. And the primary purpose was always to authenticate, we'll ask them to put this up on the screen, authenticate the message and the messenger. So go back to the Old Testament, to the, the prophets, and when Elisha would, would, would throw his cloak into the river and it would split, and whenever the, the prophets would lay their hands on somebody who was dead or was sick and they would heal them, whenever uh, the, the general of the, the Syrian army was uh, told to go into the Jordan River, the dirty Jordan River, and he came out and he was healed, anytime there was a miracle, it was intended to authenticate the message or the messenger. And so when we say that passing a test was a miracle, it doesn't hold up. Even when we say that somebody was healed in a way that the medical community cannot explain, was that to authenticate the message of the messenger? No, well then it wasn't a miracle. 
Surely it was an act of providence. Surely God was authoritatively behind that. But when we talk about miracles in the Bible, it is God bending the rules of his physical universe for the purpose of authenticating a message or a messenger. And so now that's where we see what the Pharisees are asking for. They're asking for a biblical miracle. Why? Because they want Jesus to be authenticated. They want his message to be authenticated, and that in and of itself is wise, isn't it? If you see something that comes from somebody or purports to come from somebody, you should authenticate against a standard that it is true. Y'all had an experience with that a few weeks ago. I'm sitting in a counseling session, and all of a sudden my phone started, and I usually don't answer it, but then all of a sudden my watch started, ding, ding, ding. And then I'm starting to get phone calls. And I'm thinking, okay, <laughs> this is the apocalypse. What's going on? And there was a common denominator with all of those messages. Pastor, I just got an email from you. And it says you need gift cards for your staff because of COVID. And they're sending me screen prints. And sure enough, it says Pastor Jeff down at the bottom. A signature just like mine. The email address says jterrell at ascendkc.org. It sure looked like it was from me. And so people actually responded to the email, don't ever do that. But I started pointing out a few authentications. Number one, the email was actually jterrell at ascendkc.org at gmail.com. Number two, the grammar and punctuation was horrific. Space, space, comma, space, space. The English was horrible. Look, I know I make mistakes, but never like that. <laughs> and so, friend, my point in sharing that is that we should always be evaluating people and messages in our lives against the standard to determine whether or not it is true. But what Jesus exposes here is that the standard was very self-serving for the Pharisees. You say, how, how do you see that? Well, look at what verse 12 says. Look at this. It says he sighed deeply, first of all, in his spirit. What does this mean? He's frustrated. <sighs> He's frustrated because the standard that these Pharisees are measuring the authentication of his message against is their own. It's their own expectations. It's their own definitions it's their own control. And, and the reason why I can say that authoritatively is because of two phrases that are repeated. Look at verse 12. Why does this generation and no sign will be given to this generation? The phrase this generation to that audience of Pharisees and to the original audience of Mark was significant. Write down two passages. You can look at this later. Deuteronomy 135 and Deuteronomy 32.5. Deuteronomy 135 and Deuteronomy 32.5. If we had time and we were Puritans or some other denomination, y'all would be here for an hour and a half and we could just unpack this and it'd be awesome. But we're not and I won't. So let me just summarize it. The phrase here is the same phrase in those Old Testament passages, but in the Greek version of it. So remember, the original audience was very familiar with the Hebrew scriptures, very familiar with Jewish culture. The Pharisees were experts on the Old Testament. So when Jesus twice said, this generation, he's drawing to remembrance the generations of Jews in the wilderness. 
And so how did the generations of Jews in the wilderness coming out of Egypt measure their standard of whether or not what God was telling them or what Moses told them was right? Their own expectations. Remember Moses said, God provided manna, the bread, in the wilderness, but their expectations were the vegetables and the meat from Egypt. So what did they do? Grumble, grumble, grumble. Moses was told by God when they didn't have any water to speak to the rock. Moses' expectations was, well, I'm frustrated with these people, so I'm going to strike the rock. Gumble, gumble, gumble. The expectations of the Jews in the wilderness in that generation were always to compare what God said against what their expectations and their comfort and their control was. And that's why that led to grumble, grumble, grumble. So what Jesus is exposing here is that the Pharisees have a standard, but it is their own expectations, their own feelings. And friends, we often do this, don't we? How many times have I talked to people and said, why did you make that decision? And the answer is, well, I had a piece about it. Can I help you out on that? If the foundation of your decision is exclusively on whether or not you have a piece, that is a house of cards. I'm not saying God doesn't give you peace, but it's not you exclusively having this feeling or this sense of peace that God uses to confirm the authenticity of his message or his messenger. I hear people say, well, I just felt like it was right. That's the house of cards. But let me move even beyond that and say that if, if your, your reason and your standard for measurement is some great pastor or some great Christian author that you've grown to be comfortable with, and that is exclusively what you're using to be the standard of authenticity, it's a house of cards. If it's some young Jewish man who speaks very fast on a podcast and is sponsored by ExpressVPN, <laughs> Ben Shapiro. If that is the standard that you're using because he's informed and he has good data and and you can check out his sources and that is the standard that you use for authenticity, beloved, that is a house of cards. And so what Jesus is saying here is, look, I, I have given you the sign and the sign is me. And you might say, well, no, he's given a lot of signs. He's given the miracles. Yes, but remember, that's to authenticate the message and the messenger. The end game is never the miracles. The end game is Christ. He's given authoritative teaching. Remember back in Mark chapter 1. Nobody preaches with this kind of authority. Jesus does. Jesus in seven plus chapters of the gospel of Mark has been moving us toward the standard of authenticity and that is Christ. And so beloved, the opportunity we have to be able to see Christ is not his miracles. Which by the way, can miracles happen today? I think that they can but I would lean more toward the fact that they're acts of providence than the miracles that we see in the Bible because the, the intention and the need to authenticate the message and the messenger is no longer here. We have the 66 books that do that. And so you walking away from this should not say, well, he's Pastor Jeff, I should believe it, it's authentic. No, 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 compare what I'm saying with the rest of scripture. When somebody tells you that I made this decision because of this chapter and verse, look, I have a chapter and verse to back up why I made this decision. Compare it with the rest of Scripture. 
And so Jesus is providing for us by the response that he gives to the Pharisees that the way that we can see theologically so that we can understand clearly begins by savoring the sign. And the sign is Christ and his word and his church. Do you savor that? Number two, as we think about being able to be motivated to see clearly and understand, number two, savoring by remembering the Savior Savoring by remembering the Savior. There's going to be a lot of repetition in these verses. He's going to talk about uh, things like seeing and watching out and beware and, and eyes and perceive. And what he's saying is that it is important, listen, beloved, it is important that in life you analyze things. It is important that you don't just respond and react in the flesh. It is important that you're constantly evaluating everything in your life, every circumstance, every mode of information, every source of information. We are to see, we are to watch out, we are to beware, we are to perceive, but we're also supposed to understand verses 17 and 21. He says to his disciples in some of the harshest questions he asks them in the Gospels, do you not understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you not yet perceive this is going to be repeated over and over and over again? So he he wants them to get it and he wants us to get it. I want to set it up by focusing on one of the harshest statements that Jesus says to his disciples in all of recorded scripture. Look down at verse 18. He says, having eyes to see, do you not see? And having ears to hear, do you not hear? Would you turn back to Jeremiah chapter 5? Jeremiah chapter 5, I believe, is what Jesus is referring to. There's several passages in the Old Testament that talk about having eyes but not seeing, having ears but not hearing, but, but this one aligns most specifically with these words. And so again, remember, the, 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 the disciples in the boat with Jesus would have had this knowledge of the Old Testament that is far superior to ours. The the original audience of the Gospel of Mark would have had a a knowledge of the Old Testament far superior to ours. So when words or phrases or concepts were spoken by Jesus that had Old Testament foundations, immediately they would have gone back to that passage, but even more specifically, would have understood the context. What is the context of Jeremiah chapter 5? Well, the Lord is saying that my people profess loyalty. The ethnic Jews, the descendants of Abraham, they professed, Lord, we are loyal to you. Yahweh, we are loyal to you. But as chapter 5 unfolds, he says that they've hardened their faces like a rock toward God's correction. Verse 3. They're becoming rebellious like the other nations, verse 9. And so God is going to consign them to judgment at the hands of Babylon, verses 7 through 19. And so he then gives the reason for why is this going to happen? Why is it just for God to take his people and actually judge them and hand them over to the pagan nation Babylon? Listen to verse 21. Hear this, O foolish and senseless people who have eyes to see but do not see, who have ears but do not hear. Same phrases. He's making an indictment. This is who you are. You have the ability, you could see, but you refuse to see. 
You could hear, but you refuse to hear. And what is actually behind all of this? Look down at verse 23. This people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. And so that's why Jesus' question in verse 18 reflects the statement of Jeremiah 5.21. And that is, disciples, you're heading on a trajectory that could reveal that you are just like your ancestors, hardened in your hearts and actually not my people. Man, how did he get there? Well, let's walk through these verses. So what's going on, just horizontally speaking? Verse 14, the disciples forgot to bring bread. I mean, come on, can't we all relate to that? You ever forgot to pick up milk at the grocery store? You ever forgot to bring your lunch to school? So, I mean, what the disciples are doing here don't, doesn't seem like it, it entails or should receive a harsh response like Jesus gives them. And so they're figuring out, oh, wait a minute, we, 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 we only have one loaf. These are uh, round pitas that were usually used to kind of be a snack that would help them move from one point to the next without low blood sugar. And so only one of these round loaves for 13 grown men heading across the Sea of Galilee. And so Jesus, in verse 15, cautions them. And look what he says, watch out, beware. Isn't that interesting? Don't you think just one of those verbs would have been sufficient? Watch out. Or, beware. But he uses two because he wants to emphasize something. And that is, the the definition of watch out means to come to understand as the result of perception. Why is that important? Because when there is a warning, it is important to be able to understand the why, the what, and the how behind the warning, isn't it? We'll see if they can put a quote up on the screen toward that. Nice. It is not enough to beware. You must understand the the why, the what, and the how behind the beware. I mean, as a parent, I don't just tell my kids, don't touch the red coil on the stovetop. I explain to them why. It's hot. It will burn. If you touch it, it will hurt you. So don't touch it. Stay far away from there. What Jesus is doing here is he's educating them that it's not just enough to be warned, understand the why, the what, and the how, the warning, and that's where they're going to struggle. So what specifically is the warning? Well, well, it looks a little odd, doesn't it? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. I mean, first of all, what is leaven? Well, leaven is the dough from a previous batch that gets added to the new batch so that it can ferment and it can rise. But then the next question is, why the Pharisees and why Herod? Because the Bible usually uses leavening as a negative example, although sometimes it is a positive, actually. Because the point that Jesus is driving at is that a little, a little can greatly affect the lot. Beware of the little because it has the potential to affect and impact the lot. Beloved, some of the things you need to pay most attention to in your life right now are the little areas. We often are focused on the big areas, but this is a reminder that the little often impacts the lot. Now, what's the point that Jesus is giving? Well, look at the Pharisees and look at Herod and see if you can go through the Gospels and see, are there any common denominators? And the answer is yes. Here's the answer. Would you please write this down? Because it is the fruit of a lot of labor and studying that you won't have to do. 
When you look at Jesus describing the Pharisees and Herod with leaven, he's talking about their thirst for self-preservation. It's self-preservation. Herod was passionate to preserve his political authority. The Pharisees were passionate to preserve their religious exclusivity. And in their thirst and in their hunger to be able to self-preserve, they missed the ultimate solution. The disciples were actually heading down this road. And this is why Jesus begins to rebuke them. Look at verse, seven, uh, verse 16. They began discussing. Uh, this is an English word that I think is, I understand why they did it, but it doesn't give actually what was going on. The word should better be translated arguing amongst themselves. Because, I mean, discussing would be like, well, you know, we only have one. We need 13. There's a lack of 12. What are we going to do? But actually what this is saying is that people were going to Peter. The disciples were going to Peter and saying, hey, you're the leader of this mess. Where were you? And then Matthew, or Peter's responding and saying, well, look at Matthew. Matthew's the expert on the numbers. He was a tax collector. Matthew, where were you on this? And then Matthew's like, James and John, y'all are sons of thunder. Couldn't you have motivated people to be able to make sure we had enough bread? And this is going around and around and around. And it's interesting. Jesus does not rebuke their arguing, does he? Look at what it says in verse 17. He says, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Here's what I would submit to you, beloved. Our self-preservation is usually because of our busyness. It's usually because of our busyness. Busyness leads to self-preservation. When our lives are so busily scheduled that we can't take a breath in the middle of our day, our busyness eclipses selflessness. It always brings us back to self-preservation. We see this most vividly in the 20-somethings in our society today. I'll talk to 20-somethings, and, and they'll say, you know, pastor, I need, once I tell them, pastor, I need to get back to church. I'll, I'll visit your church. Okay. <laughs> I'll look forward to that. Why have you been away from church? Well, I'm so busy. I got my career. I got my marriage. I got my kids. I got our ball games. Busy, busy, busy. And in that crazy, busy schedule, we are focused on self-preservation, not selflessness. And that's what Jesus is exposing here is he's saying, look, you're so focused on the bread. You're so focused on the horizontal. You're so focused on the busyness. You, you, I am giving you exactly what you need to be satisfied, but you're so focused, just like Herod and the Pharisees, on self-preservation that you're missing my identity. It's right there. And look what he says in the text. Look, look at it. He says, what happened with the five loaves and the 5,000? Twelve baskets left over. What happened with the seven loaves and the 4,000, seven baskets full, left over? And at that point, you might think the disciples are being told, well, what Jesus is telling them is, hey, I can multiply this one loaf. Don't worry about it. But that's not what Jesus is getting at. He, he's not so focused on his disciples 
concluding that he can do something, he's focused on them, concluding who he is. That's why he says here, do you not yet understand? It isn't a question of can God provide for you financially? I hear hear this a lot as people are thinking about a, a career change and they sense that God is calling them to them. He's gifted them. He's skilled them. They could help the local church, but it comes down to finances, and they, they draw this conclusion, ah, I can't, he's not going to provide. The point is not whether or not he would provide. The point is, will he be who he says he is? And if the answer to that question is yes, then who cares about the finances? He's drawing his disciples to the place that this entire gospel has been drawing them to, and that is his identity. What is his identity? Well, Mark has already talked about this. He's talked about it back in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. This was a title from the Old Testament that was first given to Adam. It was next given to the nation of Israel. It was next given to King Solomon, and each one of those failed. And so then you get Daniel 7, 14, and you see that phrase again. In in this case, it's the son of man who will have everlasting dominion. His, His kingdom will last forever. Everyone will bow and worship him. And that's why the gospels constantly refer to Jesus as son of man or son of God, because that is tying all of the Old Testament together, headed toward Revelation. This is the identity that Jesus intends to reveal as he reveals himself through miracles, through teaching, through life's circumstances. Here's a quote I'll ask the team to put up on the screen. True identity of Christ will always disrupt our quest for self-preservation if the self we are preserving does not align with his glory and his best for us. You know, I've had to engage with this as I I moved from being in the business world to being in ministry. I got my MBA so I could provide for my family, so I could pay for their college, so we didn't have to take out a mortgage to go to McDonald's. But there was that point that I came to the realization that, no, Jesus has called me to this, and I'm going to rest in his identity, not in the potential outcomes. And you know what? He's already always provided We've been even able to upgrade from McDonald's from time to time. The point is, is that our self-preservation will always be disrupted when the self we are trying to preserve is not aligned with God's glory and his best for us. I want to draw your attention to one other thing. Grammar is important, beloved. Words are important. Punctuation is important. Remember back in Jeremiah 5.21, the Lord said about his people, you have eyes, but do not see. You have ears, but do not hear. But look at what happens in verse 18 of Mark chapter 8. Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? It's not a statement here, beloved. It is a question. And the warnings of scripture are always intended to elicit a response from God's people. We'll put another quote up on the screen. I know we've got a lot of quotes. But your response to the conviction of Scripture will reveal the true condition of your heart. 
Beloved, every time you open God's word to read it, every time you come to sit and listen to preaching, it's an opportunity for you to be convicted. It's an opportunity to move you from where you were in your thinking to where you need to be. And my, my, my challenge to you is this. This is where I get to be raw. You know, I wish in a 45-minute message you remembered every detail, but you don't. I don't remember every detail. But I believe, beloved, and I stand on the authority of Scripture when I say this. Every time you open the word, every time you hear the word preached, it is intended for you to respond to in one area. There is something for you specifically today from this message. And sometimes because of the deliverer, you got to work a little bit harder at that. Sometimes because of your, so, your sin. Sometimes because of your laziness. Sometimes it's because you stayed up late playing video games the night before and you're sleeping during the sermon. But if you have eyes to see and you come in with intentionality, the Holy Spirit has something for you each time you hear his word preached, each time you open the word. So my question to you is, how are you going to respond today? And what Jesus is saying to the disciples is, listen, don't get so bogged down by the horizontal busyness of your life. Don't get so bogged down by the self-preservation of your life. Get to a place where you realize it's not about self-preservation. It's about selflessness as you focus on the true identity of Jesus Christ. And that impacts your thinking, speaking, and behavior. Which moves us to number three. Savoring by receiving the struggle savoring by receiving the straw. I got to tell you, I, as I read this and I'm like, oh, it's another miracle. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of sad, isn't it? But by now we've heard about lots of miracles. We've heard about lepers being cleansed. We've heard about deaf people being cleansed. We've heard about a little girl who was brought up from the dead. And so it's like, okay, we get it. Jesus can do these things. And so even as we read verse 22, we're kind of set up to, well, it's another miracle. And they came to Bethsaida, the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee. And see, so people brought to him a blind man. Okay, so this one's a blind man. And of course, they're going to beg him to touch him. You see, you can almost get into the cynical rhythm as you're reading the text. But we should ask the question, why, why does Mark include this miracle? Why does he include the details that he does? And I believe it flows out of the context of our passage we've been studying, and that's why it's included in this sermon. Let me show that to you in, in three discoveries that I had this last week. The first one is in verse 23. Look what it says. He took the blind man from the hand and led him out of the village. Isn't that interesting? So he's in the village. There's a lot of people around him. Everybody knows this guy is blind. Why does Jesus intentionally take him out of the village? Then look down at verse 26 he, after he heals him. He says, do not even enter the village. And the reason for that is a phrase I encourage you to write down, and that is the messianic secret. The messianic secret. Jesus was constantly focused on the messianic secret in the Gospels. What does that mean? It means he only revealed himself to the people he wanted to reveal himself to. And so Jesus kept his true identity a secret to many people. That's why he would say to the leper, cleanse yourself, go to the temple, but don't tell anyone else. He had intentionality in who he wanted to reveal himself to because Jesus does not always meet our expectations. That is crucial for us, and that is a struggle because don't we want him to show up exactly how we want him to show up? A loved one is sick. We want him to heal right now. 
I can't stand my job. I want him to provide another one. I'm single and I want to be dating or married. Provide that person. And we constantly have these expectations that we are expecting from God, but very rarely does he meet our expectations exactly how we want it, does he? You can write down John 13, 1 through 20. I was studying this with my wife. She's taking some ladies through a, a project called Simeon Trust to teach them how to read and understand and then teach God's word. And as we're looking at John 13, you see in verse 1 that the, the context is extremely Jewish. They're there at the feast of the Passover, and, and Jesus has instructed them, get the Passover ready. And there's all these Jewish details that went into the feast of Passover. And then as you see in verse 4, all of a sudden, Rabbi Jesus does something very not Jewish. And he washes the disciples' feet. And my wife and I were discussing the fact that in, when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to the new covenant community, very rarely does it meet our horizontal expectations. In fact, whatever conventional wisdom is when in your mind and your logic, expect the gospel to usually work the exact opposite. And so I think what this shows us is it shows us that Jesus actually avoids the crowds. He actually avoids stirring them all up. And he actually takes the blind man out of the village and tells him don't even go back to the village. Is it's a reminder that the gospel is a struggle because it rarely meets our expectations. But then there's another struggle that is interesting. Look what it says in verse 23. When he had spit on the man's eyes. Wouldn't you just love Mark to provide a footnote to understand why? Like, was there something in Jesus' saliva? Maybe there was some, like, cultural deal that if you spit on somebody's eyes, that's, you know, that's an honor. I don't think so. I think the clue is actually found back in chapter 7. Look at verse 33. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting... What was the problem with the man who was healed in verse 33 of chapter 7? Just look up at the header of the paragraph. He was what? He was deaf. So the original audience is thinking, oh, he just spit. Wait, didn't he just spit on somebody? What was the problem with the person? He's, oh, death. And now he spits on somebody else. What's the problem with the, the man in this? What does it say? He's blind. Turn back to Isaiah 35, please. Again, original audience, very familiar with the Old Testament. I think they would have heard spit, deaf, spit, blind, deaf, blind, and connected the dots to Isaiah 35. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And I think what Mark is doing by mentioning spit twice only for deaf and blind is he's drawing the reader's attention to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the king of the kingdom that we all long for. Jesus is ushering in, in an inaugurative sense, inaugural sense, the kingdom that will have a future consummation. And why is that important? Because likely the original audience of the Gospel of Mark was sitting there holding kids who were disabled. 
Likely in that audience of the original audience of the Gospel of Mark, there were people that were at the poverty level of society. There were probably people who had been divorced. Probably singles who longed to be married. Probably married who longed to have children. Probably marriages with oppressive spouses. And they're looking around and saying, wait, if if this is the man who can open the eyes of the blind and open the ears of the deaf, why do I have these problems? This is a struggle. And the struggle is God's timing isn't always our timing. What a reminder this is, beloved, by the details that Mark is providing in the text that we could so easily skip over. And I think he's harping on this concept of struggle, that the Christian life is going to be a struggle. It's going to be a process. And that brings us to the last observation that I have. Jesus asks, after touching the man, spitting on his eyes, do you see anything? Now, in the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus says something or he touches somebody, how long is the process before the healing takes place? It's usually immediate. So why in this particular case does the man respond to Jesus' touch and spitting and say, I see people, but they look like trees walking? What that tells us is that the clarity wasn't complete. And so what does Jesus do? He doesn't spend time explaining. Verse 25, he lays his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Now again, Mark, why? Why the details? Some scholars believe that it's because the the man's deformity was so intense that he had to do it twice. No. Some people say, well, the the problem is that Jesus was getting rusty. So he had to, oh, I got to reach deeper in my bag of miracles. Not what happened. I think what Jesus is doing here for his disciples is reminding him that gospel fruit takes time. The gospel understanding takes time. It is a struggle. And friends, we live in an era where if we just have a problem, if there's trivia, I mean, if you're sitting around, like the other day we had some friends over and we were talking about, is it processes or processes or processes? Google, how do you pronounce processes? There's this British guy. It's processes. I mean, we live in a day where we have a problem. You can watch a two-minute YouTube video. You can just speak into your phone and it gives you the answer immediately. And we take that same expectation to the gospel and to understanding. Have my expectations, give it to me, God. Have my timeline, give it to me, God. My understanding should be immediate. No, he says in the details of this, the gospel is a gospel of struggle and process. So beloved, let this be an encouragement to you. Last quote up on the screen. The struggle is actually often a part of God's design that is intended to deepen our understanding and prepare us for what's next. And I can't wait to unpack what is next. Beginning verse 27, Lord willing, next week. As he talks about the struggle of progress, you're going to see evidence of progress for a man who with his other 11 disciples was showing that his heart was heading in a trajectory of hardness. He's gonna show that, mm, There's actually process. There's actually progress.